Hello, and welcome to Adventures and Awakening. This is your host, Amber, and I am on today with the wonderful Anne Andre. Hi, Amber. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. I'm so excited to chat with you today. So I wanted to um, tell the audience a little bit about yourself real quick. Can you go ahead and give a quick backstory? Sure. I am... 64. I've had a couple of different careers. I started out in music and was a cellist, and then I was a newspaper reporter and covered a variety of things, including education. And then I became a social worker after what I'd seen in covering inner city school districts. I decided to get a master's in social work and worked in a variety of capacities, mostly doing community organization for 20 years, and then got pretty burnt out and found yoga. This was 15 years ago, so there wasn't a yoga studio on every corner, as there seems to be today. And I started at Ursuline College at the former Sophia Center, started taking yoga there. And it took over my life. And so I became a yoga teacher and I've been involved with yoga for the, for since then. And it's really been wonderful. And in addition to yoga, you primarily teach restorative, correct? I teach three different styles of yoga. Um, primarily I teach restorative yoga. I also teach chair yoga and therapeutic yoga. And I also teach functional movement yoga. So I have three different areas that I specialize in. Okay. Um, And the reason, one of the main reasons I wanted to have you on today was you were part of a book called Awakening the Divine Feminine, which is 18 stories um, that are shared with from different women, you being one of them, as well as you're currently writing your own book, correct? I am. Yes, I'm deep in the weeds with my own book right now. And can I share with the audience the title of that? Sure. Okay. Ways the, working, to... the working title at the moment. <laughs> the working title. So why don't you share then a little bit about your book and then we'll... Um, talk about your offering for the awakening the divine feminine sure so the book that i'm working on is called ways to heal quotes reflections and practices to manage in an age of anxiety and each offering will have a quote and then a reflection and then some kind of practical practice. It might be a breathing practice or a short meditation, (coughs) excuse me, or a hand posture or a movement exploration, but things that you can do in real time, in your real life that don't take very long. So you don't have to be a yoga practitioner to use the tools and skills of yoga which are so critical for our capacity to manage in our increasingly challenging life. 
Yes, I think everyone in the world could use this book <laughs> right now with what's going on in the world. Yeah. Um, are you? Do you have a release date? I do not. Okay. I'm done with my first draft, but I'm. Uh, we'll see. That's as you may know. That's sort of the very beginning. It's a long process. I'm well, super excited. Hopefully, by the end of the year, we'll see. Yay! 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 And this is something I could do, like, say someone's having road rage, I could flip to this book or remember from that and tap into something that could call me or. Yes, it's, uh, if you get yourself in an aroused mode, which means you're triggered, and we all get triggered all the time by a variety of different things. The idea is to have a toolbox that you can reach into so that you can help yourself manage. I think that so many people are desperate to feel better and to function with less stress, but I don't think they know how. Leads to well, you all kinds of ways that people are trying to solve that issue and a lot of the things that we choose don't work out terribly well. That's absolutely correct. I like binge and you as much as anybody, but you know, it's not going to solve all your problems. <laughs> Except if it's the British baking contest, then it's <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, uh, the kids baking championship last night. My kids and I. Um, so that's funny that you said that. <laughs> yeah, really fun. I'm, I'm totally hooked on the um, great British baking show. More, more than I would like to admit. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have such a, you have a wealth of knowledge as far as how to relax, how to calm the nervous system. All of your years practicing yoga, teaching yoga, restorative, the functional movements. Um could you share a little bit about why that's so important right now in this day and age, in sure. this world, why we need it? We are increasingly angry, and we're angry at each other. And we've created this big divide. You're on one side of the divide, or you're on the other side of the divide. And it's not particularly helpful, because we have very significant problems that need creative solutions. And if we're at each other's throats all the time, the chance of finding a creative solution is definitely decreased. So what happens when we get angry? Why do we get angry? You think everybody's probably got a relative or a close friend who is, has a very different viewpoint than you do. And they may be, or you may be, um, a little proactive about discussing these differences and get into a heated conversation. So when we get into a place where we get heated, which is sometimes called being triggered, your emotions get very powerful. What I'd really hope to share with people because it's been so powerful in my own life is to notice what's happening in your body and not just to think about all the thoughts that are swirling around in your head. When you get 
triggered by something that's upsetting to you, doesn't matter what it is, it's the event of being triggered, your nervous system, which is your main operating system for your body, goes into hyper arousal because it senses that you're in danger. It feels that you need protection. So your nervous system shifts into this warning danger mode and your body gets flooded with hormones that speed you up, that make everything feel dramatic and dangerous and that everything's going very fast. Now the flip side to that is when you're relaxed and you're hanging out on the couch and maybe you're binge watching that Netflix and maybe you've had a glass of wine and you're feeling pretty chill, your nervous system lets down. It says, ah, oh, there's no threat. I'm okay. There's no challenge in the moment. And that's when you go into your relaxed state. Alcohol will put you in that relaxed state. It can't keep you there. As many of us know, if you've had a couple glasses of wine and you go to sleep and you wake up two hours later and you're kind of hot and your mouth's dry, you don't feel that great. <laughs> mm -hmm. So these practices are about learning when to notice that you're triggered and then having tools and skills that you can use with your physiology because this is a physiological issue. When we're constantly stimulated and aroused and nervous and upset, that's called chronic stress. And that's when your system is constantly being flooded with hormones from your endocrine system to keep you hyper aroused because your nervous system thinks you're in danger. So you have a lot of hormones coming from your, particularly from your adrenal glands, which sit on top of your kidneys, which get activated through a system that starts up in your pituitary. So there's this whole feedback loop of stress. And if we feed into that, and, and so many of the things in our modern life, we spend less time outside. We tend to spend less time moving and being physically active. Those are both things that tame your nervous system and decrease that flood of stimulating hormones. We spend more time on screens and we spend more time on social media, which is created to take you down the road of being triggered. Uh -huh. The algorithms of social media sites, if you watch something, it will suggest the next more of that type more extreme. It will lead you down the road of being more on one side or the other because it's triggering. And when you're triggered, you, you, you click on the next one because you want to say, you want to see the next thing that they're going to say. So we all tend to go off into our silos and it's not helpful. It's not helpful for us. And it's certainly not helpful for building community and building a civil society. Uh -huh. So it's, it's important individually, but it's also important collectively. I mean, everybody's wondering, you know, why are kids so agitated at school this year? <laughs> Heavens, of course they are. Their parents are agitated. We had a year where we had a lot of online schooling, which was very challenging on many, many fronts. I did a meditation session 
for an online middle school class. And it was wild. Kids were coming in, kids, kids were going out of the, you know, the room. I can't remember what the server service was, but it was, it was agitating. And then we're back in school and then, but we still have concerns about safety and we have kids learning how to be together again. And there's a lot of stress at the adult level in buildings about how to proceed, how to manage. The kids are just manifesting what's all around them. Uh -huh. and how do we, how do we teach ourselves and teach them to settle? That's so true. Yeah. And then they're wearing masks, which I know helps, but it's also closing the throat chakra. <laughs> like they're good, they're bad. I it, um... they have their challenges. I mean, in, in England, you know, my uh, I have a, a young relative whose family is living in London for a few years, and their kids don't aren't masked. But of course, there's been a higher rate. And it is, it is difficult. It's nothing, nothing is without its um, challenge and its benefit. So what are some of your go-to ways to help calm the nervous system other than yoga? If, if I have someone who's listening, who, you know, is new to all of this, what are some of your, I, I like going outside. Yes. That's my probably one of my favorites or med mm -hmm. meditating, but I'm a big meditator. So not a lot of people are. What are some of your ways? Let's talk about meditation just for a minute, because I think that one of the things about meditation, when you say I'm a big meditator, that people feel like they're either a meditator or they're not, because if they're not going to sit in the lotus position for an hour a day, then they're not a meditator. And I really like to encourage people when I started meditation, because I am a meditator, but I started doing three minutes a day because that's all I could do because my mind was so busy and my mind is so busy. It's one of the reasons I do all these practices. I always say my husband doesn't do any of this and he's calmer than I am because his base <laughs> is calmer. Uh -huh. I'm uh, very interested in the work of um, Dr. Richard Davidson and he is a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and he has written a book that I'm currently teaching at called, called The Emotional Life of Your Brain. And he says we have different personality styles. And that's how we come into the world. But we can't affect those styles. One of those styles is how resilient we are. And you've heard a lot of talk, I'm sure, on many podcasts about resilience. Mm -hmm. But our, how resilient are we to triggers? How resilient are we to... You know, I don't know if you saw in the news today, but uh, Tim Kaine, who was Hillary Clinton's uh, vice presidential nominee, ended up leaving, left yesterday for the Capitol and was still in his car this morning because of a snowstorm in Virginia. Now, that's a pretty triggering event. How did he, how do you get through these things that happen in your life? How do you bounce back from it? How resilient are you? Now, that has to do with your prefrontal cortex. Because some people have more uh, prefrontal cortex on the left than the right. And if you have more on the left, you actually have more resilience. And some people, Richard Davidson says, who runs an institution up there, the, the Center for Healthy Minds, I think it's called. And you can look that up and they have some programs that you can use. 
to help with getting your mind to be more resilient. If you don't have that much activity in your left prefrontal cortex, you have more in your right. I'm hoping I'm getting in this right. It's one way or the other. Then you have less resilience. So we're, we're learning so much about the brain. And what we're learning primarily about the brain that we have been for about the last 10 to 20 years in particular is that it's neuroplastic. It changes. It isn't that you're just fixed. You're not, so many of us have been pigeonholed and stereotyped. You're born, you know, you grew up in a family and your family says, oh, you're the one who does this. You're the one who's good at that. You're the one that's not good at that. So we have this whole pigeonholing effect and it's just simply not true because your brain can change. And that's what's so spectacular about meditation. And uh, Richard Davidson is the one that hooked up the monks and put them in an MRI machine and found that their prefrontal cortexes were different from all the meditating, but he also found that you could affect change in people's brains when they didn't meditate quite that much. As much as, you know, monks have meditated 10, 30,000 hours, you know, in their life. But just people who are more are willing to do a smaller amount, but do it on a regular basis, that they can affect changes in their brain. So sitting, you know, what was it? Uh, Pascal said that most of the world's problems are created because man is unwilling to sit quietly in a room by himself, the French philosopher. So if we are willing to just sit a little bit and notice this wonderful yoga teacher and psychologist, Beau Forbes uses what she calls the check-in. And this is what I would suggest as the biggest single tool that people can use to help their nervous systems recalibrate, which is to do the check-in. The check-in is you sit down and you could do it standing, you could do it sitting, you could do it outside walking around, but you notice you go inside and you do what's called interocepting, right? If we're, if we're noticing what's going on outside of us, that's external, that's exteroception. If we notice how we're moving in space, that's proprioception. But interoception is inside. It's noticing what's going on inside of you. So how's your mind? Like, do you have a lot of thoughts moving through your head? You know, we call it monkey mind in yoga. Or do you have, are you kind of sleepy? Or are you someplace in the middle? Or do you have that one repetitive thought that keeps going around like, oh my God, oh my God, this might happen, oh my God. You know, what's going on in your mind? And you're noticing this without judgment and without trying to change it. Like, I shouldn't be thinking that. Or why am I thinking that? I'm so bad because I'm thinking that. None of that. It's just noticing. And then you notice your mood. And then you notice your body. How's your body feel right now? I don't know. Right now for me, I can feel the back of my throat a little bit. Hmm. I feel my hips on the chair. Hmm, my shoulders are a little bit up. I say you can do that body scan where you notice you actually get out of your head a little bit and get into your physical body, into your sensations. So we're not focused on everything that's going on outside of us. We're drawing inward. That's the basic tool, the check-in. Then there are lots of other tools that you can build off of. There's acupressure, which is a wonderful practice of finding a couple of spots around your body. In acupressure, it's based on the Chinese meridian system. Meridians are like rivers around your body that go to your 
lakes, which are your organs. So you find these places that you can do a little release work, like that big mound between your thumb and your index finger on the top. That's good for headaches. I don't know if you saw it over Christmas. There's a present that was very big online. You may have seen an ad for it. That's a clip that you can put right on that acupressure point. And that's what that's about. Hmm. So acupressure, um, emotional freedom technique is tapping. Some people like the tapping as a way of settling the nervous system. Getting up and getting physically active. They say now that a big exercise session every day, you know, which is great, is good. But what's really important is getting up every 30 to 60 minutes and moving around for three minutes and then sitting back down again when you do what you have to do. The really deadly thing for the body is sitting for long periods of time without getting up and moving. I'm a big proponent of small things done well. Because small things done well cumulatively create change. You know, it's, it's the beginning of January. Everybody, everybody wants to change their life and make all these big changes. I, I always tell this story about how when I was um, teaching in a bigger studio and I had my first class of the year and this woman came up to me after class and she said, oh, this is the most wonderful class. I'm going to be here every week. I didn't see her again until the first week of class the next year when she showed up and said, this is the most wonderful class and I'm going to be here every week. <laughs> I kind of wanted to say, I remember you. <laughs> first week last year and I don't mean that as a judgment but a little thing that you can do on a regular basis instead of thinking that we have to do big things to make change we don't have to do the big things so much but the little the little things cumulatively create a big thing keep it simple It's not so much simple, because some of these things aren't simple. They're kind of nuanced, but keep it manageable. That would be more use. We're overwhelmed already. You don't want to be more overwhelmed. Be wary of people selling you big things that can change your life. <laughs> I think a little bit. If it was that big, somebody would have found it by now. It's just the, That's it's just the little things. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that what you said, the getting out can you hear me? is, I, I can. Okay. My end. Now you are. And do you have a good internet connection? Can you hear me now? Now I can hear you loud and clear, yeah. Okay. It's, yeah, uh, I apologize. I don't know if it's my internet or what, but it has been in and out. Um, but this, is, this is what happens with flow, right? Flow 
it's flowing and then there's an interruption. So then in our life, how do we deal with those interruptions? Well, they happen. So we uh -huh. notice them. Oh, I couldn't hear you. And then we sort of process that. And then hopefully move on. Absolutely. Right? That's that resilience piece. I have found, I think, that one of the least helpful questions is why. Why does something happen? Lots of horrible things happen. A lot of really difficult things happen. But why? I don't know. It doesn't really get us anywhere. Why did my connection not work? Why did somebody not show up? Why did somebody not do what I thought they were going to do? Why did this person say that? Because we don't have any control over why. We don't really have any control over most things, but we really don't over why. It's really just about, I think, how we respond to what happens. Because that we have some choice about. We have some agency around that. And is building that agency of how we respond to the things that happen to us in our life that makes the difference. You mentioned the book, Awakening the Divine Feminine, and the article or essay that I have in there is about my trip to India. Yes, which I love. Oh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And I, I just stumbled into that trip. I'd been in a yoga teacher training and the teacher had mentioned it and it just kept coming up. And for me, in my mind, every time I would sit down to meditate. And when I went there, the, it was a chanting pilgrimage, and I was actually at a Catholic ashram, which has a deep history in the intra-spiritual Christian ashram movement, it was called, in the 70s. The ashram was founded by a, um, a priest named B. Griffiths, who's now deceased. But the head of the ashram is a gentleman who's still with us, Brother John Martin. And every day we'd get a lecture from Brother Martin. It was called the four o'clock talk. It was started by Bede and then um, Brother Martin took it over. And, and his way of perceiving the world had an enormous effect on me and continues to because I'm still in touch with him. And you can follow Brother John Martin on Facebook. He's very inspirational. And he talks about getting back to this question of why. He says, the lowest form of conscious awareness is to make yourself a victim. Right? Victim yeah. said, why did this happen to me? Why, 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 why? And being a victim, and I'm not, I, I don't want to blame, you know, the victim it's not it's not blaming the victim it's just that we have a choice how we perceive what happens to us mm -hmm. and he says the next level of awareness is where you realize you do have some agency and you you can take some action now, i don't know what you do if you're in a refugee camp in south sudan that's currently flooded and that does keep me up a bit at night because those situations are so dire and so extreme but but if you have, you get a handle on some agency, what can you do to help yourself? But then the challenge is you realize that you're not really in charge as much as you think you are, that there are bigger forces 
whether you think of them as being from your subconscious, the part of our conscious awareness that is not available to our mind, our thinking mind, or whether you think of it as being part of the collective unconscious, what Carl Jung talked about, that we're all connected like the roots of a tree. But then, then this third level of conscious awareness is this idea that we are all connected. And so the actions that you take affect me in some kind of subtle, invisible way, and the actions that I take affect you. And I think that is a big part of our yoga experience is trying to create an attitude of connection and compassion for each other. But we, we have to start with ourselves because if we aren't compassionate towards ourselves, then we can't be compassionate to anybody else. That's so very true. I think the first step, as you said, to healing is getting out of that non-victim. Uh, a lot of times when people come from a deep place of hurt or trauma, it takes a lot of processing that grief and a lot of uh, work to get them to shift perspective, to see it from a different, a different angle, a different um, perspective of how to look at it instead of the why. And I, I'm a big believer every single action that happens in our life, every single thing is only here to help us learn, to help us grow um, and to maybe remembering who we are or the why. I think everything happens for a reason. I'm a big believer of that. Um, and we are, we are all connected is my belief. And I think Awakening the Divine Feminine, this book, um, your story in it is uh, is needed right now. I think a big part of my me doing this podcast, me sharing my voice, try to like just share with the world is women need to come together. Women need to have a voice and remember who um, we are. And I loved your story in this book where. Um, which I'll let you share, but you talked, which you were putting off, putting off, but kept coming up in meditation. And this trip really, it seemed changed your life, correct? It did, yeah. And, and so without, mm-hmm. without sharing everything, we little, um, a little, a little bit about your, your adventure over there. Because I would say this is part of your awakening story or, um, yeah, I would, it's a part of it, correct? It is. And I, I, I very much like and am deeply grateful for the opportunity to travel and to see things from a different perspective. I have a, myself right now, a subscription to a yoga studio in the Netherlands where I take classes because I love studying with people from a different part of the world. There's an interesting movement teacher named Mark Walsh and he teaches all over the world. And he talks about the difference between teaching people in Japan and Russia and Denmark. People are different as a group that we have these group attributes. So when you go to India and you get off the plane (laughs) and you're coming from, 
Ohio in January and you're flooded with this humidity and all this color and all these smells, some are pretty noxious, some are flowery and beautiful, you're submerged into a different consciousness than you have going to Heinen's right in Northeast Ohio, which is doing, doing your routine, doing all the things that you always do. Right. Mindless day to day. We're so habituated to them. It's not that they're good or bad. It's just, you know, this is what we do all the time. So we don't, as you say, we don't, we're mindless. We don't think about it when we're doing them. So you go into this environment. And one of the things that I found so striking and I don't think I put this in the, in the essay is, or the chapter is that when you look at people often, they really look back at you and their eyes look like deep wells. I had some very powerful connections with people just looking at each other. Even one time I was in a, in a van and I was locked eyes with this young woman who was on a motorbike with about four other people, because that's how it is in India. You might have a baby in front and three people on the back of the driver and, you know, in the middle of traffic, like you can't even imagine. Somehow, I mean, there, of course, are terrible accidents, but it's anybody who's driven overseas, particularly in Eastern Europe or Asia, you know, parts of Asia, that it's very different than here. It's a lot, uh, appears to us to be very disorganized. But what happened at the ashram was, and as a woman, I was completely released from having to go grocery shopping or do any of the chores of daily life. My only job every day for over three weeks was to wake up and we did meditation and chanting at five in the morning. And then a group of us just did our yoga, yoga asana postures at six in the morning in a silently in a meditation hall and then we had breakfast and then we met it we chanted for three hours from nine to twelve with a with a talk from our teacher russell paul who wrote the yoga of sound in the middle and then you know more chanting more brother martin would talk uh, eating in silence which is always an interesting thing communally chanting before and after eating but then eating in silence this opportunity to practice very deeply. And then also to be exposed to a tradition in Hinduism where the, the churches, if you will, which are temples are from almost some of them from the beginning of the common era. So when you walk into these structures, I hate to even call them that it's, you feel it in your body. It's very powerful. And I say in this, you can see why when the British came over, they found this a bit overwhelming, pagan, scary, and it was so far from, from their sensibilities that they had to squash it and relegate it to craziness. You know, the focus of the, the yogis that would lay on the bed of nails and that kind of thing. Which is, which is, I mean, I, I don't know, but I imagine that's some kind of an advanced practice. <laughs> <laughs> but to, 
to have that opportunity to sink into an experience that's very different and in a culture that's radically different than the one that I grew up with, but still feeling deep commonality with the people and with the place and with the experience in a way that you really can't explain. I didn't want to leave the ashram and when I came home, I got sick. It's almost like I, I was homesick. Maybe I was homesick for not having to <laughs> cook, clean, do the grocery shopping and pay the bills and work all the time. I don't know. To be completely free from that part of your life. But it was, definitely expansive for the perception of life that I had previously had. It made the experience of being in the world feel bigger. And so much I think of what we do today makes us actually feel smaller, which is strange, but we only associate with people that think what we think, believe what we believe, you know, most mm -hmm. of the people we follow online. And that's my story and I'm sticking to it. And can we open up to another narrative? I'm, I'm very grateful to any uh, devoted follower of an organization in New Mexico in Albuquerque called the Center for Action and Contemplation which was started by a Franciscan priest named Father Richard Rohr and he currently they, they have a lots of they have a daily email which I highly recommend to everybody if you just google the Center for Action and Contemplation and look for the daily email you can get it it is uh, Christian oriented but it's certainly interesting material for all people of who are seekers of truth but they do a journal twice a year and their current journal focuses on a concept that i find very interesting called the cosmic egg and the cosmic egg is that they're you know like a russian nesting doll mm -hmm. the inside one is your story so amber's story and ann's story you know we grew up here we learned this we went to school here you know we did this we did that our children, blah, blah, blah. So then outside of your story, you have our story. So our story is the story of your family and your community and everything that you're connected with. So it's that, it's the, it's the tribe around you. And then there's the story, which is the big, story. of course, is very hard to ascertain what the big story is because everybody has their own version of what the big story is but but the critical piece is that there are other stories there are stories other than amber's story and ann's stories there are the stories of the people at that ashram there are the stories of the people who are refugees from our southern border there are stories of people who have been trafficked from Africa into Italy, women who are stuck in the sex trade, 
there are all different stories around the world. So the more that we can open up to the stories of other people, the less we get mm, stuck in our own little our story or your story. We can, we can expand the story, the bigger story. That's beautiful. That just is, comes back to that oneness as we are all connected. We're all just having a different experience. And those different experiences, it's the, it's the giving voice to that. It is women giving voice to their stories. It is people of different, uh, you know, the construct of gender, the construct of race, the construct of culture. They all exist, but how real are they really? Ultimately, uh -huh. we are all connected. And I, I felt that powerfully in India. I felt very connected to that place and it made no sense. And then when you came home, you actually were physically ill. Do you I think it was because you raised your vibration so much over there? You were so in tune and then you came home and had to live, you know, typical day-to-day -day life again? I, you know, I, I don't know. Did I have a, did I get a virus in India that was slow growing and, um, you know, a lot of people can have subclinical vir viral conditions that don't show up. I, I do actually think it's one of the reasons that we have a lot of um, anti-vax sentiment is because there are many people in this country who are not well and they have not been able to get help from the Western medical system as it exists because the Western medical system is fabulous for acute care and it is not very good for chronic care. So people that have chronic conditions, having lost their faith in the Western system, do not believe in vaccinations because they think it's part of that system that hasn't helped them. I, I'm a believer in vaccination and I hope dearly that we will be moving towards the end of this pandemic but I'm not exactly sure what was the matter with me. And I don't think anybody knows. <laughs> and that happens to a lot of us. I do One think, of the you know, that you're right, that the, the, the level of stress and the speed that we live at in this Western society is almost untenable. We just, we just go, 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 go. And I, like you say, I got off that Ferris wheel for a little bit and then getting back on it. I think my body just said, you know what? We're not going to do this. Uh -huh. no. <laughs> you can go ahead if you like, but we're not joining you. <laughs> it's listening to the body, right? Comes mm -hmm. back to getting out of the mind, getting into the body, tuning well, into what your body needed. When you get sick, you don't have much choice. You have to, you have to stop and listen to it. Right. Because by I came home on February first, and by July I was I was uh, my white blood cell count had completely tanked, and I was losing a pound a week. So I, I, you could see it in the doctors' faces; they all thought I had cancer, and they were just waiting for it to show up. But I didn't. One of the things that you say helped you bounce back was chanting. Mm -hmm. It was practice. 
So whatever okay. practice is for you, and this is, if you're listening and you, you don't have uh, many tools in your toolbox for calming yourself and for helping your monkey mind thoughts about past regrets or future anxieties, I'd really encourage you to just try some small things like a short walk outside, as Amber said, being outside is so therapeutic. A short rest in the middle of the day, laying down, getting comfortable, following your breath. A small amount of movement that feels interesting and comfortable to you. You didn't think about it when you were a kid, you just did it and it was fun. And now we've turned it into something that's like you have to be good at it. You have to be good at yoga or you have to be good at you know, lifting weights at the gym. Find something that's that your body enjoys. It's the thing about New Year's resolutions. You're not going to do anything you don't like doing. Ultimately, you'll figure a way not to figure a way not to do it. Because who wants to do anything that isn't fun? I mean, I find all these practices just fun. And after years of doing them, it also, of course, does add to your capacity. But you can build that capacity over time. But you only have to start with, you can only start with small, small steps. favorite um phrase that is good for someone who's just starting out um like chanting or mantras to calm the mind so mom mom means mind mantra tries a tool there are a number of different i believe ways of uh, interpreting that word but so if you think about a mantra as a tool for your mind and a tool to calm your mind. It depends, of course, on you. It could be an English word. You could breathe in and out peace. You could use love, compassion, patience. So you can always use an, just one single English word. And you say it to yourself silently as you breathe in and out. Now, if you grew up Catholic, you'd have to be a little bit older to remember the Latin Mass, like me. But one of the things about the Latin Mass was is that you could go anywhere in the world and Mass was exactly the same because they said it in Latin. And so there is a certain advantage to that. Latin, if in my essay, I talk about these French monks who chanted in Latin for five hours a day. And then in the Catholic Church in the 60s, there was a a big change and some of the practices that were traditional were let go and these monks stopped chanting and almost all of them got sick because that the thing about chanting and particularly if you use a word like a latin you can use a latin word or you can use a sanskrit word kyrie eleison is a latin phrase Om Namah Shivaya is a Hindu phrase. But if you use a phrase or even a word, Om Shanti is a nice one in Sanskrit. Om Shanti, Shanti is peace in Sanskrit. Om Shanti, breathe into Om, out to Shanti. 
is that your mind isn't thinking about the word. So if the English word works for you, great. I am peace, I am love, I am compassion, or just peace, love, compassion. The Latin word, if that is part of your tradition and resonates with you from your personal history or a Sanskrit phrase like Om Shanti Om, Om Shanti Om, Om Shanti Om, and you can sing them or you can say them, Om Shanti Om, Om Shanti Om. And when you do it enough and when you, when it becomes where you're not thinking about it, you can feel the rhythm in your body. You can feel the vibration changing. I, at least for me, you're really able to feel how every little sound that each letter makes carries in your body. Yes, and I talk about in the essay when I heard, this was the longest mantra I'd ever heard. And I heard the teacher leading this training say it. And it almost knocked me off my chair because it, it felt in my body like when a truck jake breaks. Like my body just jolted from the sound of this mantra. And it wasn't just me, it was two other people. There were about 15 of us in the training and two other people had the same experience. We're like, can you write that down for us? <laughs> and so I brought it home and it's a long mantra, but it's become my core mantra. And you know, I had to learn the first section and I had to learn the second section, but it is a mantra about overcoming obstacles. And I believe that chanting that mantra brought me to India. Mm -hmm. I think that was part of this process that I was on. So the other thing to remember about these ancient sounds is that they are ancient and that people have been chanting them for a very long time. So very many people over a very long time have chanted these sounds. So they've been kind of in the ethers of the world. So when we chant them, we're connecting with that energy. One of the great ways to start too is to, is to use a CD so that you're chanting along with somebody else, if you like that. And that's uh, either the spoken or the singing. Most of the CDs are singing. Deva Pramal is a wonderful artist who chants. And Saplan Kaur is a Kundalini practitioner and has some wonderful albums. So that can be a place to start and that you can put that on in your car when you're driving to work and chant along. I have, a, I have nurses who do that. They, they chant in their car on their way to work. This one nurse was telling me that and she said to me one day, she said, you know, everybody wants to work with me. I said, of course they do. <laughs> because your energy is settled. Yeah. Right. And you do practice and people can feel that when they're around you. You don't have to say anything about it. She doesn't talk about that. She's grounded and she's all balanced before she goes into her day and they can feel it. Yeah, she's, con she's, in she's connected to her interior space, even if it's a difficult space. And that's one of the things that I think is hard for folks. If you sit down and you try to do a little meditation and it's awful, that's okay. It doesn't mean that you're doing it wrong. It doesn't mean there's anything the matter with you. It just means that your nervous system is going, what the heck? is going on because we never do this. And some folks' nervous systems are so agitated that they actually can benefit from something called um, brain biofeedback. And there's a great practitioner of that, uh, David Granoff, who's in the Cleveland area, 
on Chagrin Boulevard. And that's a machine that they can hook you up that will help your nervous system downregulate. Because if you've been used to running, you know, think of it as megahertz. If you've been running at this really high speed for a very long time, and then you ask your system to try to slow down, it's very difficult. So you have to take it a little bit at a time and notice what's going on without judgment. And don't think there's no bad meditation, just meditation. And sometimes it's okay. Sometimes it's neutral. Sometimes it's actually unpleasant. And that's, I had that experience with chanting when you do long periods of chanting at the ashram. Some days it's just, this is so wonderful. And other days it's like, I'm bored. And other days it's like, this is creepy. I get my, my skin's crawling. I had this one night where I felt like I had little spiders running all over my body. I was convinced that I did. And after we were done, I made one of my friends check my head with a flashlight because, you know, you don't have power a good portion of the day in India. Uh, and there was nothing on my body. It was, it was clearly something was being released. And these are things we don't understand. The brain, our cognitive brain thinks it's in charge and it thinks it understands everything. And it's just simply not true. The more we learn about the brain, we have these deep ways of knowing and being that we don't have any words for. That's very true. I think part of where the whole entire planet is right now, we're, we're in this just big healing process, releasing trauma, ancestral wounds, and the collective is being called to raise its vibration and in order to do so we each as individuals need to raise our vibration which is coming into the body balancing the nervous system really being offer and have a tools to do that the audience in a moment but why in your opinion, why do we need to come together now more than ever? Well, it's so interesting because we're being pushed apart by the pandemic physically. Right. Thank goodness for these tools of, um, you know, technology, both the, the challenging ones and the um, ones for which we are so grateful. I think we've always needed each other. I'm not sure it's more now than ever. I think that we, because... It feels to us as if the challenges are greater, but, and, and I think the one that is the most confusing in terms of how do we solve it is climate change. That's really, the earth is degrading and there is no doubt about it. And that's the one that I find the most overwhelming and the scariest. So what tends to happen, titanic, Titanic, when things are going down, is the people the, the people start. You know, some people tend to cooperate and help and put somebody on a lifeboat, but, but a lot of people end up fighting. And I think there's this panic among people that things are not going terribly well. I try to remember that things were ter going terribly well during the Blitz in London. I'm really not sure how those people continued with their lives, but they did. So I think we are asked to continue with our lives as well and hold space for, as you say, our healing, but the healing of the planet. 
Fossil fuels are, and humans in particular, a very short event on the life of the planet. Fossil fuels, fuels have been a categorical disaster for the planet. So where do we go from here? We're certainly not going to get there by being at each other's throats. So can we hold space for each other, hold space for the planet and do what we can do in our small, small corner of the world? Because what you do in the small corner of your world does make a difference in the big picture. And that's what hope's about. Hope is knowing that we are part of that. Every one of us is part of that bigger picture. So that's what the story in the Bible is about, about the 99 sheep. We got that one sheep that's out there. Oh, who cares about that one sheep? Well, that one sheep matters. We all matter. We matter to be part of, of the whole, even when it's difficult to be part of the whole. Mm -hmm seeing that other person as yourself Prime. seeing that other person and sharing love as much as you can yeah 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 that the illusion that the the, the idea that we're separate is an illusion mm -hmm. and so the idea that uh, i mean the the most ridiculous one is is skin color this whole illusion that we've brought up that we are somehow that, that the pigment has any effect on your soul and your cognition and your whole being. But we, you know, as our egos look for ways to divide, we look for ways to conquer and divide. It's what the ego does. So noticing when we want to separate And these practices are in part a way of trying to keep the ego in check. And we live in a culture that celebrates the ego. So we are, it's countercultural what we do. I, your beginning, um, your first paragraph in your um, chapter in the book where you talked about, oh, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Basically, are we have completely um, deprived our bodies when Plato said that the mind and the body are at odds. And if we're smart, we'll select the mind as the superior side. And then um, we went on for, years and years and years and years to then completely put the mind over the body. And Christian tradition followed suit and the body was covered up, deprived of sex, sleep, starved, and even flogged in apparent effort to show the body what, that the mind is boss. I laughed. I thought that was good. I read it to my husband. I read the entire thing to my husband though. Um, and then how listening to um, our body, it says, like a frustrated parent of a wild two-year-old, the Western mind clamped down hard on any request from the body as messages from the devil incarnate. I mean, you could, you just said it so well. <laughs> um, like, how many years ago did we, when we lived in tribes and communities, 
we listened to our body. We weren't so much mind-based and, and a lot of my women empowerment workshops, like I'm trying to teach and get us back into the body and get us out of the mind. And um, I think the world is, I think that's where we're going. I really do. But um, I loved how, I love that paragraph. It was, I was like, oh, that's so good. Um, we need to come back into the body. We need to really tune back into who we are so that we are able to connect with one another to get past all the separation. When, when we're triggered, if we can get out of our heads, it's very hard because we're so busy thinking about the thing that really is irritating or annoying to us. Mm -hmm. But if we can get into our body and feel the heat of the sensation of strong emotions, and we realize that we are not those emotions, all right, we are the vessel for those emotions. And those, those emotions will pass through us and they will change. You don't feel the same way you felt when you woke up first thing this morning and you probably don't feel the way now you're gonna feel right before you go to bed because we're always changing. And the body is our grounder. It's our safe place, it's our home. And we've culturally taken that away from ourselves and particularly in many religious traditions, it's the body is evil. The body is the tempter. The body is what keeps us impure. Nothing impure about your body. Your body's the purest thing around. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's the mind that creates the impurity, not your body, in my mind. I mean, in my worldview. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Well, I know that you have some offerings. So I wanted to share this with the audience. They can find you at the yogapathonline.com, correct? Yeah, but it's the yoga path was taken. So I'm the yogapathonline.com. Online. You're currently offering Zoom sessions still Monday and Tuesday? I teach Monday, Tuesday, and Friday mornings. I teach a functional movement class on Mondays. At 9.30 to 11, I teach a ladies therapeutic class Tuesdays at 9, and I teach a chair yoga class Fridays at 10.30. And in order to sign up, we, only, we would just need to email you. All you have to do is email me. I don't have a subscription service. I just, if you would like to come, I send you the link in an email. Nice. And I love it. On Zoom, I think it's it's. Uh, I love studying on Zoom and I love teaching on Zoom. I do miss the uh, community and the capacity to see a little better what people are doing. But in general, I do think it's a it's 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 been a very interesting part of the evolution of movement practice because if you are at home, you can feel less restrained. You've got yourself on mute. If you feel like groaning, you can groan. If you have to get up and go to the bathroom, you don't have to, you know, announce it to the whole studio because you're getting up and leaving. It's, I think that there's a certain comfort level because if you feel safe, you're going to practice better. Safety is enormous for your nervous system. It is the number one thing. You can turn your camera off. You can just be in your space. 
So there are some benefits. And I do see people privately on Zoom as well. And that way I can really look at what they're doing and make some suggestions. And uh, I was seeing a small number of private clients. I'm not currently in our current atmosphere, but hopefully I will be again at some point. And I wanted to share that just because it is online, it doesn't take away from the experience. I know the few times that I've practiced with you, the last time being a virtual Zoom restorative, man, I dropped in to a place of just amazingness. Um, and all the times that I've practiced with you, the experience that I have on the inside is life-changing. So I highly recommend to those who are, are listening to give it a try. Um, I did forget to mention that I teach and I didn't in November and December because of the holidays, but uh, I teach a once a month free restorative. And I also teach a once a month writing workshop for women. It's called move, sit, write, read, because we do a little bit of movement, but it's mostly energy medicine based movement. We do a little bit of seated meditation and then we write in response to prompts that I su suggest and it's always a theme. And then we go into breakout rooms and we read what we've written to each other. So if you have an interest in writing and that's something that you would like to be involved in, let me know. And those will be up on your website soon? They should, yes. Okay, <laughs> cool. I did check, I did check beforehand. And, um, so I'm excited to try one of the Tuesday ones. I teach on Mondays, but I will definitely try out a Tuesday. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for being on the podcast today, for taking time out of your busy day. Is there anything else you'd like to share? I mean, I know you're a wealth of just wisdom and knowledge, and you know so you so much about the nervous system, and just it's a big part of us healing. Um, is there anything else you'd like to share? Amber is is acknowledging your commitment to your restorative practice. I send out the email for the free restorative and you often practice. And I do send out recordings too. So you don't have to be present at the time that the class is offered. And, and that's what you show up for your practice. And that's what creates change. And I'm saying this not so people will feel that they're bad if they don't. But it is a question of intention. Do you want to show up for yourself? If you have the desire, you will. If you don't, then maybe you just have to wait a little bit and maybe your desire will be for something else that is what your soul and your body is needing. But show up for it. Mm -hmm. Got to give it a try. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it goes well, and sometimes it's neutral, and sometimes it doesn't go so well. And being unimpressed with that. The issue is making the effort. It's, it's a big thing I've been learning in writing because of COVID and my reduced work schedule. I've had the time to really delve into this book I've always wanted to write. And one of the things that kept me from writing this book was it's not going to be any good. Nobody's ever going to read it. How am I ever going to get it done? How am I ever going to get published? And so I had to really sit with all those, which don't really matter. What matters is that I want to write this book. 
-hmm. and not being afraid to do it. It doesn't turn out very well. Oh, well, at least I did it. And I'm getting old enough now that I know I don't have possibly another 50 years to do it. Right? I need to get it done if I want to, if I want, if this is something that, and it is something is figuring out what is it that you really want to show up for in your life. Don't let that, don't let that, don't let that opportunity go by. Well, I'm sending all the good vibes for your new book because I think the world needs it now. Uh, if you just go to the grocery store and you see people, I mean, it's like I have to come home and energetically cleanse myself every time I go out because it's just everybody is so anxious and in fear. And it would be nice if people had tools. <laughs> yeah. So we're really, we're really hoping to, um, and there are many people doing this work, many wonderful people like this, Dr. Richard Davidson at the University of Wisconsin and the Center for Healthy Minds, variety of programs and it's coming we're just not we're not there yet it's to teach people how to work with their nervous systems we're, we're it's coming mindfulness uh, um, school programs you know helping people to follow their breath calm their nervous system notice what's happening in their body but we are we're not we're not quite there yet learning and growing we'll get there gotta have the faith Mm -hmm. Well, I truly thank you so much um, for being on the show, for taking time it's been out of your day. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I hope you have a beautiful day. And everyone, remember, when you awaken you, you remember you. Namaste. Namaste.